Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is The Morning Shift. The U.N. Climate Action Summit took place in New York City yesterday. Dozens of leaders and corporate executives from around the globe shared the steps they're taking to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that are warming the planet. President Trump did make a brief appearance at the summit, but the Trump administration has taken many steps to disavow climate change and to roll back environmental protections, so the U.S. did not request a speaking spot. Karen Weigert was keeping a close eye on the summit. She's vice president at Slipstream, a clean energy innovation nonprofit based here in Chicago. She's also the former chief sustainability officer for the city of Chicago. Weigert said it was bizarre watching a climate summit take place in the U.S. without any meaningful input from the host country. The U.S. is the one country that has now claimed it will be leaving the Paris Agreement. And so that leadership role has really become a vacuum. And so you see ramifications in things like China did speak. China is actually on path to meet its carbon commitments, but it didn't push for more. One could argue that that would have been very different had the U.S. been engaged and been pushing for leadership as well. Well, there's been talk of China stepping in to become the global leader on climate change. And we know the country has been pursuing renewable energy, taking some other steps toward greening its economy. Outside of their decision not to push for um, more, uh, how else are we seeing them play a role um, on the global stage? You see China play a role in a couple of different ways. The one is obviously what they're doing with their own economy. And so they do have a tremendous scale when you look at renewable deployments or when you look at their views on fleets. The scale is just tremendous. They play another role in the investments they make around the world. And that's where you see a decent amount of investments that looks a little different than the investments at home in China. Many of the investments around the world are closer to creation of fossil fuels. And so that domestic pressure that China has at home from its residents, you know, driven by environmental degradation, driven by air quality concerns, uh, but then with that pressure for economic growth, you see some of the shifts where that climate leadership may be present more in some of the domestic policies, although for certainly not fully, and different in some of the investments. And so China has played a sense a leadership role, but certainly not over its global portfolio and the change it's trying to drive. And it is still the world's largest single emitter recognizing that the U.S. is the largest historical emitter. Well, many climate advocates were unimpressed with the outcome of the summit yesterday, saying that the moves by countries and companies lacked ambition. What's your take? I think that's true, uh, because you have to look at the global sources of emissions. And the largest two emitters did not step up, did not do something new. Now, you have to match that, though, with many, many countries did. So you now have over 60 countries that are going to be upping their commitments by the end of next year. You have global corporations coming up and making transformative commitments. You have cities and states doing the same thing. And so we have to recognize that carbon is carbon, no matter where it's emitted. And the fact that you are seeing a lot of action in smaller countries, in some decent-sized economies, and in different parts of the economy is critically important. And then you have the youth leadership. Well, I want you to put yesterday's meeting in context for us before we turn to some of the youth action we've seen. How would you compare what we saw yesterday to what we saw at the Paris Climate Accord? I think what you saw yesterday was, in a sense, an 
amazing recognition that the climate is changing, that the weather patterns are changing, that there is much more risk in the economy already. So the fact that the Secretary General did call this special event on climate speaks to that recognition, and it also speaks to the need for increased ambition if those goals from Paris are to be met. And so I would contrast it with you know, when Paris was signed, it was an amazing breakthrough. It was an opening of a new era where for the first time you had countries around the globe agreeing to a goal. And it was a bottoms-up goal. Every country was able to commit to what they thought they could contribute. Yesterday was a new platform where the ask was make transformative commitments. And many, many countries stepped forward to do that, but not the largest emitters. And that's a very different thing than four years ago. We focused a lot on the United States and China so far in our conversation, but there are other countries in play here as well. I'm thinking about India has over a billion people. Um, How are they playing a role? So India did speak yesterday, and they did make commitments to expand renewables, and that's critically important when we look at global carbon emissions. Now, they didn't make a commitment to stop coal, so you're seeing a bit of a portfolio story there, but absolutely they were part of this discussion, and as we look at global carbon emissions and you look at that large population, a lot of construction growth will happen in places like India. So understanding that they're thinking about that is very, very important, and the fact that they chose to participate yesterday is also a good signal. So, Karen, I want to turn to uh, some of the most talked about moments from the climate summit. This is Swedish teenage climate activist Greta Thunberg sending her message to world leaders loud and clear. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? What did you make of her speech? I think it's safe to say it was an extraordinary moment to have a 16-year-old no one had heard of a year and a half ago stand before heads of state from around the world and tell them exactly what she thought. And what's also critically important is that she was matched with 4 million people around the world who joined climate protests on Friday, things that in many ways she sparked in terms of a movement. But what's also important is she has her data. She can talk about carbon and where it's coming from. But what she also has is the perspective that her generation didn't create the carbon, and yet it's her generation that will be asked to live with the most severe consequences and to be asked to try to find ways to pull it out of the atmosphere. And so it was an incredible moment to see a young person who now speaks for many, many young people. The polling data shows climate is a critical issue for the youth, much more so than for other generations. And to have her stand in front of world leaders and present her views, it was a moment that I think many will never forget. And what's your sense of how her speech was received? This is the great question, because at the end of the day, what matters is, are there pathways and policies? Are there changes that will reduce carbon? And so the fact that she spoke is critical, but the real question is what happens over time? Will this pressure be sustained around the world on world leaders so that the leaders who have not yet committed their countries will do so, and so that the leaders who have will push even farther? Because even the commitments that are made are not enough to reach that 1.5 degree goal from Paris. We spoke with a couple of young local climate activists on Friday. Let's take a listen. There's two main things that brought me into the action. The first one is growing up and living in the southeast side of Chicago. 
we're negatively impacted environmentally by Chicago. We have pet coke in our neighborhood that raises manganese levels in the dirt. There's also a lot of pollution in the air and diesel trucks running by playgrounds and by schools. And it's really heartbreaking to see. We are fighting for a livable future. We are fighting for our lives. And if we don't take drastic measures to, to, to do that, then it's not going to happen. That was Adelina Avalos, Director of Outreach for the Illinois Youth Climate Strike, and Anya Sastry of Barrington. She's National Outreach Director for the U.S. Youth Climate Strike. They both spoke to us uh, Friday ahead of heading out to their protests. It's interesting because many of these young climate activists can't vote. They're, they're too young. So how much of an impact do you think they can really have on politicians or public discourse at this point? The fact that we're actually talking about them is a fabulous indication. The fact that the president is tweeting about Greta is an extraordinary thing to behold. And fundamentally, they are the future voters. They also typically have parents and uh, relatives who are voters, who are watching their kids or their grandkids and know that they're going to be asked very specific questions about what they did in this moment in time in their own families. And so this will be important to see what is sustained. And it was interesting to see these climate protests because they took place certainly here in Chicago. Uh, You had some of the, the extraordinary young people who were there. But they took places in they took place in cities like Dhaka, which is not a place that has contributed significantly to global emissions, but will suffer disproportionately. So you actually have a unity globally amongst a generation. And if that is sustained, that will have political pressure for decades to come in all of these countries. The question really is, how quickly? Well, in speaking with Adelina and Anya, it's fascinating because at the, at the local level, there's a lot of focus on environmental racism and bringing an equity lens to these conversations. Is that also happening on the global stage? It is. And it needs to be something we continue to focus on. And that example of DACA is a great one. There have been mechanisms uh, of creating funds that will support technology transitions in countries that have fewer economic means but will suffer tremendously from climate. So when Paris was created, there was an attempt to create some of this global balancing so that the equity questions can be addressed appropriately. I mean, the majority of the carbon emissions up there have come from what are now essentially wealthy nations, with the U.S. being in the lead. But the sea level rise will happen everywhere, and many poorer nations will seriously be suffering you also have neighborhoods that will be disproportionately impacted, like you heard here in Chicago. And so that equity question is one that lives within a city, it lives within a country, and it certainly lives globally when we look at the changes to come from heat, from drought, from sea level rise, and from storms. Those with the fewest resources have the hardest time when those challenges hit, and that unfortunately extends globally as well as very much here in Chicago. And we should mention Dhaka is in Bangladesh. It's a very low-lying area, and it's home to tens of millions of people. Uh, This climate summit takes place at a time when science increasingly shows that climate change is accelerating. What are the latest projections? Well, the latest projections include that we have already seen global temperatures rise over one degree Celsius. The goal we've been talking about is a 1.5 degree. It's It's in Celsius terms. The projections on a business as usual show that you could actually reach that 1.5 degree goal. You could exceed it by 2035. If you look at the business as usual, it shows potentially a three degree rise Celsius by the end of the century. But think about our experience. What's happening to weather? We're seeing many more intense storms. We're seeing much more intense heat. We're seeing wildfires at levels that have not been seen before. And so we're already starting to see what happens when the climate can be destabilized. 
And so that creates more of a sense of urgency. We're getting an understanding of what might happen. So now the question is, will these actions, will this summit, will these protests prevent that from being the pathway and put us on a different one? Well, it seems unlikely that the Trump administration will do anything to, to mitigate climate change. Quickly, in the absence of federal action, what can states and cities do? States and cities have very large economies and are directly close to their residents. If you look at Chicago, the majority of emissions come from heating, cooling, and operating buildings and transportation. So policies on clean energy and on energy efficiency, on land use, and on looking at how transportation is actually run are all important. They can be done at the local level, certainly at the state level. And the state of Illinois already has energy legislation on the books in the Future Energy Jobs Act. There's a lot of question about will there be a next generation, the Clean Energy Jobs Act, that will incorporate many of these elements of climate justice and an economic transition while we're looking at carbon prof- the carbon profile longer term. That's Karen Weigert, vice president at Slipstream, a clean energy innovation nonprofit based here in Chicago. She's also the former chief sustainability officer for the city of Chicago. Karen, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Earlier this month marked the 80th anniversary of England's King George VI famous speech to his nation addressing the declaration of war against Nazi Germany. For the second time in the lives of most of us, we are at war. Over and over again, we have tried to find It was George VI's first wartime radio broadcast. The stakes couldn't have been higher. It's the eve of the war. This new king has a nation to reassure. And he has a speech impediment, a severe stammer that at times makes it impossible to get through a full sentence. That's why an unconventional speech therapist named Lionel Logue remains on hand, helping the hesitant king find his voice. The true story was recounted in the 2010 Academy Award winning film The King's Speech and is now being brought to the stage here at Chicago's Shakespeare Theater. And joining me now in studio is the king himself, (laughs) actor Harry Hayden Payton. Welcome to The Morning Shift. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm always curious about um, the difficulty of taking on a historical role, someone who people have at least some familiarity with. Mm. How do you prepare for that? Well, that recording you just played is one of many on YouTube of him at various stages in his life. So there's actually been a huge amount of resources uh, that I've been able to use. And that that speech was actually his impediment wasn't too bad. His first speech in front of his father was at Wembley and is much more markedly stammered. The fact had to be faced that this exhibition would inevitably challenge a comparison. So being able to sort of chart the progress of his speech and how, how it does improve has, has actually been, there's been a lot I can look at and many books. The film I've tried to avoid uh-huh. so that we can look at it with fresh eyes, but I've been lucky and it's actually made me very emotional hearing that mm. because uh, I've really got under his skin and and sort of have a, f- a sense of what he must have been going through. Unpack that a little bit for us. Well, here's a guy who never expected to be king. His brother is the heir to the throne 
we gather that he didn't necessarily have an easy childhood. He had this speech impediment from, from an over, overbearing father, being forced to change being left-handed to right-handed. These things are bits that could have added to the defect, as it's described in the play. And he has this, this stammer, this debilitating thing with his speech, which is the worst possible storm for someone who's then thrown into the throne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in a position where the world is watching and listening now because radio broadcast is quite new. Television is coming through as well. It's in the early stages of that. So suddenly millions of people can witness you do these speeches, which have never been uh, the thing before. His father was the first person to do speeches to the country. It's all very new. And for someone with a speech defect, it's incredibly revealing and he feels very vulnerable. And so the play is the story of him overcoming this fear with the help of his wife, who's, who's incredibly supportive, and Lionel Logue, the speech therapist. It's their help, really, that gets him through it and helps him to overcome the fear and uh, to almost overcome the stammer. Too often in entertainment, we see speech impediments played for laughs. Mm. And as an actor, I'm curious about the care you took mm. with crafting specifically that part of the character? Oh, I take it very seriously, and I realize I'm representing people who, who deal with this every day. And what's nice with the character is that he is able to lighten the mood himself. He does have a wit and a sense of humor. Sometimes the fluency of his words gets in the way of the joke landing as well as it could. But he does have a sense of humor about it, and he, he's able to recognize that this is ludicrous that he of all the people in the country it's him that now has to address the nation and be there for them at a time when the nation's in need of a leader sadly in his brother he abdicates and the only other option is this guy who in the play is just described as he can't successfully order fish and chips mm. but he's a he's a sensitive man i think because he's been through a certain amount of trauma he has a great empathy and I think this makes him the right person for the job, the right king at the right time. And as it happened, he became much loved and did manage to unite the country and have a, um, a coronation that impressed the world and took us through a war. Talk about this relationship between your character and Lionel Logue. Uh, he's an unconventional speech therapist. And I think about the relationship through this lens of you're trusting someone with really the most vulnerable part of you. Hmm. And Lionel is being asked to do the seemingly impossible. Mm -hmm. Well, at this stage, the king or the prince um, had seen nine other speech therapists. So it really was the last chance. And Lionel Lowe was, you know, someone without a degree in psychology or anything like that. He understands that you have to go deeper and you have to unpack it and acknowledge that it's actually my own doing. There's an element, I think, with stammers where it can become a safety blanket. I saw interviews of people who had actually been treated by Logue, who were still alive. One of them spoke about uh, his stammer feeling like he was stuck behind bars, and he had this image of him holding onto the bars and not being able to get out. And what Logue was able to do was make the bars evaporate. And I think that's that's what he manages to do. He he treats Bertie in a way that he's never been treated before. Um, he's very keen that they're equals. 
and that they're honest with each other. And he challenges Bertie and he and he makes him angry, which helps Bertie with his stammer because he's not thinking about it. I want to listen to um, a, a clip, and this is a. <laughs> it really highlights the the push and pull between mm. Lionel Logue and King George or Bertie, as you call him. Let's listen. So why should I listen to some poor bloke who can't put one sentence after another? Why should I waste my time listening to you? Because I have a right to be heard. Heard as what? As Anne! I have a voice! That moment uh, captures what, for me, is at the core of this relationship, which is Lionel convincing Bertie that he has the right to speak up. Talk about the evolution as, as actors, how you work through that evolution every night. Well, we're, we're just listening to each other very carefully. He's poking me and prodding me and, and trying to get this reaction out of me because he can see early on that I am a good man and I could be a very good king. He has many different tactics to get me to see that and face up to it and go beyond fear and step into the light, if you like. That moment, in fact, you've just listened to, I, I always think of as, as a, I call it the Matrix moment, if you remember those movies, uh-huh. when the lead character suddenly realizes he's in the Matrix and he can stop bullets flying at him. <laughs> and it feels a bit like that, where he can sort of step out of the situation he's in and acknowledge it for what it is and realize he can do this. He has it in him and he's a man and... What he has to say is valid. And those people that didn't necessarily give him the time of day in his youth, his father, his brother, they were wrong. He has the power. What do you hope the audience takes away from this story? Firstly, I hope they're thrilled to see it as more than just a film. This production is very much a play. It was designed to be a play initially, And it makes sense as a play because largely you've just got two people in one room communicating. So what the play does more than the film is really get into the characters and into the relationships in a deeper way and also into the the political and social struggle at the time. So I think they'll come out educated, entertained, moved. And it's an odd feeling at the end because you feel like a mountain has been climbed which I think is hugely satisfying, and yet we're heading into the Second World War. So there's a sort of sadness and pathos, but it's very funny. It's a great ensemble of actors, a lot of them Chicago-based actors. And my wife is playing my wife. Oh, I didn't know that. which is wonderful. We haven't worked together for 12 years, so we're the king and queen, beautifully written by an Oscar-winning writer. And I think I'm really excited for people to see it and see what we've been working on. Is this the first time you've worked here in Chicago? Yes. So what's your impression of the city so far? I love it. I have to say I love it. And as a theatre person, it seems like a really buzzing city for theatre. The second night we were here, there was Broadway in Chicago on in Millennium Park. And I'd just come from New York where I did My Fair Lady for a year and a half. And my Eliza was on stage singing. So we really very quickly plugged into this, the beat of the city and... As we have with New York, the welcome we've had in Chicago has been amazing, just amazing. My daughter's at the public school here, and we're living not too far from the theater, and being on the lake is just magical. Mm. This weather is incredible. I, I, 
you'll be out before winter, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'll give people you have warned me, but I'm just going to be here every summer now. I think. Well, before I let you go, I want to talk about another project uh, you're involved in, one that just premiered over the weekend. It's a new little indie film our listeners may have heard about, Downton Abbey. Yes, yes uh, rings you, a bell. <laughs> you play uh, another birdie, another Birdie birdie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was it like to to put that mantle back on? Oh, just the greatest joy. Obviously, I came quite late to the series and uh, will forever be Lady Edith's happy ending. But what you've got, again, it's a it's a wonderful company of actors, a great ensemble. And Julian Fellows has managed to write characters that now everybody knows and intertwine them together. And with this movie, he's created two hours without a break, no adverts here. And he's intertwined this story and these characters that we've sort of all grown to love in a way that's just gorgeous and hilarious and moving. And we're all a very happy family. So last weekend I managed to go to New York for the premiere and seeing each other is a joy. And It's, it's exciting that both these opening, uh, openings are happening on the same day for me. That's film and stage actor Harry Haddon Payton. He's starring in the play The King's Speech. It runs now through October 20th at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Harry, it's been a pleasure. Break a leg. Thank you so much. And that's today's morning shift. Are you a subscriber to the podcast? If not, you're missing out on some great conversations about your city and your neighborhood. Subscribe now or tell your smart speaker to play the Morning Shift podcast. Until next time, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.